Nehemiah, what could he possibly be thinking right now? Last week, we saw that Nehemiah had risen to the position of, the trusted position of cupbearer to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. We also saw that Nehemiah is a Jew and a direct descendant of the Jews who were taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar when the Babylonians conquered Judah in 586 BC. So Nehemiah has now been recently in chapter one confronted with the realities of what's going on in Jerusalem and to his brothers there, and he is grieved by what's going on. He's grieved, he's mourned, he's wept. And in chapter one, he does the, the crazy thing, he starts to pray. And as he prays, God is putting in his mind a call to action. So we see this call to action being firmed up in Nehemiah's mind in chapter one. And I'm afraid in, the, in chapter two, what he's about to do is he's about to go before King Artaxerxes and ask permission to go back to Jerusalem and build the defensive walls of that city. Now, if you're a pragmatist like I am, that's just crazy talk. That's just crazy talk. That's suicide to even ask that question. And to understand that better, you have to have a, a, a firm grasp of what, what has happened in the historical context of this passage. So I'm going to take a little bit different view of this than Pastor Steve did last week. I gave you a study sheet because we're going to have to refer back and forth to this a couple of times because these dates actually mean something. As Pastor Steve told us last week, the destruction of Jerusalem was, it started hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Nehemiah. It actually was, was told to Moses uh, all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, and then multiple prophets had foretold of the destruction of Jerusalem and even Solomon. When Solomon's temple was being uh, dedicated, God told Solomon then, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart, as David your father did, I will establish your royal throne forever. So it was a promise that God would stand behind Israel forever. But he says, but if you or your descendants turn away from me and serve other gods, I will cut off Israel from the land. I will reject this temple and this temple will be reduced to a heap of rubble. So with that warning, the nation of Israel did what? Nothing. They continued going away from God. And as a result, in 931 BC, we see that the, the the kingdom of Israel, which was a once powerful kingdom, splits into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Now, they still have time, but 159 years later, for 159 years, they could have repented, reunified, and followed God again. But for 159 years, they continued to go out, walk away from God. So as a result, the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered by the Assyrian Empire in 772 BC. Now, you still have the southern kingdom, which is Judah, uh, the last two tribes, and they now have 186 years to repent and to turn back to God and to reunify, 186 years. But they didn't. So as a result, in 586 BC, the Babylonians conquered the, 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 uh, the southern kingdom and under King Nebuchadnezzar, and they take the Jewish people into captivity. So Nebuchadnezzar's great-grandparents would have been in this group. They would have been taken from Israel and taken back to Babylon as servants and for any number of reasons that they were taken back. This is also where Daniel was. So, you know, we saw in the book of Daniel, we see that Daniel starts out like being thrown into a lion's den and then he ends up being an advisor and a leader in the Babylonian Empire. So this is that, that's that, that period of time. So, but in 540 BC, the Babylonians are defeated by the Medo-Persian Empire under King Cyrus. So King Cyrus now has an empire that stretches from India to Ethiopia, and he is the most powerful man in the known world at that time. And along with this whole massive thing, 127 provinces, he gets the Jews who are in captivity in Babylon. So the people that were captive to the Babylonians are now captive to the, uh, 
to the Persians. And this is during this time, uh, it, this is when Daniel makes his first prophecy that the city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt. So we're now starting to hear a prophecy that the city will be rebuilt from Daniel in chap chapter 9 and verse 25. So now, two years after this takes place, in 538 B.C., King Cyrus sends the first group of Jewish remnants back to Jerusalem. They didn't go back. They were sent back, and they were sent back by the king of Persia. And you've got to say, well, why would the king of Persia send a group of Jews back to Jerusalem to build a temple? I mean, why would he care? The answer is because he wanted to appease the God of the Jews. Being a, you know, being a pagan, pagans worship any number of gods, and he's hedging his bets. He wants to make sure that he's covered and he has not angered Jehovah, the God of, the, of Israel. So he sends back uh, Zerubbabel, as we saw last week, along with 8,000. I counted them because it names them. It names the families. 8,000 Jews go back to Jerusalem along with all the treasure that was stolen from the temple and thousands of horses and camels and mules. This is a big contingent sent back by the king of Persia to reestablish the temple. Uh, and so and it's, it's, it's one of those things that you say, why would he do it? From his perspective, it actually makes sense. He's, he's hedging his bets, and he doesn't want to tick off any gods he doesn't need to tick off, right? So in 521 B.C., though, King Cyrus dies, and King Darius becomes of Persia becomes the king. And in 515 B.C., the temple is completed. So the temple is actually completed by Zerubbabel and their group uh, 23 years later under the, the rule of King Darius. Now they're done. You have this mountain of animals and treasure and people that are back in Jerusalem. They finished the temple. What are they going to do now? Guess what they start doing? They start trying to rebuild the wall. So the wall is already, they're trying to rebuild the wall. The obvious thing that you try to do is rebuild your defensive structure. They're immediately opposed by the, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, the inhabitants that are there, immediately jump in front of them and oppose everything that they try to do. But they're at it, and this, this fierce battle is going on about this wall. So now fast forward to 580, 485 B.C., King Arius dies, and a guy named King Ahasuerus, according to the Bible, takes his place, or a.k.a. Xerxes the Great. So history, history says that King Ahasuerus and King Xerxes are the same, one and the same person. So this is when the, the events of the book of Esther take place. So the book of Esther takes place from 483 to 473 B.C. So if you remember the story of Esther... King uh, Xerxes takes over the throne. Two years, within two years, his queen Vashti has made him mad. She didn't do what he told her to do, and he banishes her, and he's now on the hunt for a new queen, and he t has a beauty contest. He decides who it's going to be. His eye catches this beautiful woman whose name is Esther. He has no idea who Esther is, but he falls in love with her. He wants her to be his queen. She becomes his queen. Subsequently, he finds out that she's a Jewess. Now, this is only after his, his number one guy, convinces him to pass an edict to kill all the Jews. So in the story of Esther, that's what this is really about, is Queen Esther reveals herself as a Jew. Her uncle Mordecai, who actually saved Xerxes' life, is seen as a Jew. And in the end, Haman's killed, and, and the Jews' are, lives are all saved in all 127 provinces. And some rights are given back to the Jews. And this is 483 to 473. Crazy thing about the Bible is you think it's written in chronological order. It's not. And so, you know, sometimes it helps to get these things in, in the order that they happen. Fast forward to 465 B.C. That's just 20 years later. King Xerxes dies, and he's replaced by King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes being his son. And Artaxerxes is the king that Nehemiah is dealing with. So this is now just 20 years after the time of the book of Esther is, is the book of Nehemiah is taking place. 
Artaxerxes takes his role as king, and he's immediately confronted by the Samaritans in Jerusalem. The Samaritans are saying, you've got to stop these Jews from rebuilding these walls. This is a rebellious group. They're they're hard-headed. They're strong-willed. They're going to build these walls, and then they're going to rise up against you. And so Artaxerxes hears about this, and he makes a decree. Ezra, chapter 4, verse 19, I made a decree, and, and search has been made, and it's been found that this city from old has risen up against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who have ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, that this city be not rebuilt until the decree is made by me. Why should damage grow to the herd of the king? Let's let's think about it. The the city walls, any people, the first thing they did was build walls because that was their defensive structure. And without walls, they could not be independent. They couldn't defend themselves. They couldn't stand on their own two feet. And any conquering army's job was to come in, tear the walls down, and keep them down. So the fact that Artaxerxes stops the rebuilding of the walls makes perfect sense. Logical. But two years later, the very same king, Artaxerxes, sends the second group of Jews back to Jerusalem. And we see in, in Kings chapter 7, verse 23, 23 Artaxerxes says, why are, you re- why are you sending your group back to Jerusalem to reinforce the temple? Why? To stop God's wrath against the king. He felt like God was coming against him, and he wanted to stop God's wrath. So he sends back the second group of exiles led by Ezra. So these are the events of Ezra chapter 7 through 10. And Ezra goes back to, he, he was a scribe, he went back to teach the law, he went back to reinvigorate the temple, he, he, he confesses the sins of the nation, he calls the people back to godliness, and the temple is restored. So Ezra didn't go back, Ezra was sent back. He was sent back by the same king who stopped the rebuilding of the walls. So this is one and the same person. Now fast forward to 444 B.C. Nehemiah, chapter 2, verse 1, it's 444 B.C., And he is now feeling that he needs to go to the king. And he's not going to ask to be sent back. He's going to ask to return. He's going to ask to go back and rebuild the walls of this temple. Now, this is 20 years after Artaxerxes became the king. It's 14 years after Ezra went back. So you could get in your mind when these things happen. These aren't a zillion years apart from each other. But, you know, there are several reasons why asking permission to go back and rebuild the walls is literally mission impossible. First of all, the first problem is you have to go to King Artaxerxes, the most powerful man on the earth, and ask him if you can go back and rebuild the defensive walls of a city whose walls you just told everybody to stop rebuilding. He's going to have to get Artaxerxes to reverse his own decree and let him go back and rebuild these walls. Doesn't make sense. Makes no sense. It is literally impossible. Nobody in their right mind would do that. Number two is even if he can get the king to go along with him, now he has to muster the manpower, the materials, the money to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. If you've ever seen a map of the old city, this is a lot of stuff to do. It's a lot of stuff to do. Where's the money going to come from? This guy's a cupbearer. He's not, jo- he's not Donald Trump. He's a, he's a cupbearer. And where's this money going to come from? And then, the, so that's impossible. Then the third part is he's going to have to go back and overcome the opposition of the Gentiles and the Samaritans that are there that have successfully stopped this from happening for 70 years. So for 70 years, it's not they haven't been doing nothing back there. They've been trying to get this done, and they've been stopped. So what makes him think he's going to be able to do this? So, you know, it's not hard to see when you look at the history of this that going back and doing this is literally just crazy talk. It is mission impossible, and yet Nehemiah is going to go back and try to accomplish the impossible through the power of God and with God's blessing. So we're going to look and see 
what he did. I'm going to look at three things that he did while he was trying to do this, and we're going to try to learn something for ourselves. And you guys will have to stick, hang with my voice here. I have tuberculosis or tetanus or something really bad. So um, I stayed away from our pastor, though, so I, I kept a safe distance. Chapter 1, what's the first thing that happened? In chapter 1, Nehemiah begins to feel a burden for his brethren in Jerusalem. And he starts asking, and he thinks, oh my goodness, somebody's got to do something about this. The next question is, what should I do? And then what should, what does God want me to do? You know, this is the same question we're all confronted with. You know, when you go to the mission field, you go downtown to the, the, the food pantry, sometimes you see the realities of life, and you think, my goodness, somebody's got to do something about this. When I went to the Philippines for the first time, when this stopped being a nameless, faceless group of people that you didn't know, and they became people you did know, and their children don't have band-aids, they don't have rubbing alcohol, they don't have food. You come home and you think, my goodness, somebody's got to do something about this. And so this is where Nehemiah was. So, you know, he, he, let's look at his life to see how he captured God's vision. Because this is what we really want. We don't want to know what we want to do. We want to know what God wants to do. So the first thing that happened here in your outline is this. God exposed Nehemiah to the realities of life. He exposed Nehemiah to the realities of life. This is where it all began, folks, because Nehemiah is like any one of us. I'm sure he knew something was going on in Jerusalem. I'm sure he knew something bad was happening there. But you know, he was ignorant to the real facts that were happening there because he knew about it vaguely, but he's a busy guy. The busyness of life. He's got, he's got a job to do. He's got a family to take care of. He has a house to think about. He's got a lot of stuff to do. And the busyness of life is obscuring the fact that something bad is happening back in Jerusalem and the process of change in Nehemiah's life began when, he was when his brother confronted him face-to-face, belly-to-belly, with what was going on in Jerusalem. That's when the process of change happened. As 21st century Christians, we have this exact same problem. We, we live really busy lives, and hey, I'm, I'm, I'm right in there with you. You know, we're, we're not killing people. We're not doing anything bad. We're not stealing anything from anybody. But you've got a job to do, you have a house to take care of, you have a family to take care of, you have parents, there's all kinds of stuff going on. But this busy, 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 many times insulates us from the reality, from confronting the reality of what's going on in the world around us. This is why pastors want you to go on mission trips. Because you stop all the crazy busyness here, you get on a plane, you go away to some place that's quiet, and it's like youth camp for adults. You get quiet, you start praying, and then you're confronted with the reality of what's going on. This is where the process of change began for Nehemiah. It's where the process of change begins for us. As long as we're insulated from the realities of life, we're never going to catch God's vision. We're going to catch something, but we're not going to catch God's vision. You know, uh, Al Buxton was here last year talking about Refuge of Hope. He's, he's on the board of Refuge of Hope. He supported Refuge of Hope. And it was not until he started going and serving at the Refuge of Hope on a weekly basis that God used it to completely change his perspective. Now listen, Al Buxton's not a slacker, so you know we're not talking about a, 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 a criminal here. This guy was a great guy, walks with God, and yet it was not until he got there right close to it that God really took him to another level. This is what happened to Nehemiah. So once that happened, Nehemiah begins to seek God through prayer. And if you look at Nehemiah 1.1 and Nehemiah 2.1, you'll see that there's a four-month gap in the calendar. So from the time Nehemiah is confronted with the facts to the time he talks to uh, the king, is four months. So for four months, he fasted and he prayed. Uh, and, you know, think about prayer. What happens from a practical standpoint when we pray? 
I know for myself, I find myself talking to God. So when I stop and pray, I think, okay, who are you talking to? I'm talking to God. See, like when I'm, when I'm preaching to you guys, as long as I'm 50% right, you know, it, it's good. You know, it's evangelistically speaking. But when you're, when you're talking to God, you have to be 1,000% right. You have to be 1,000% right. You can't fool God. You can't bamboozle him. You can't hide anything from him. And so when you start praying, you think carefully about what you're saying. And it's, there have been times I've been praying, and I'll, I'll stop and say, hold on, God, stop, stop, stop. Forget that I said that. That doesn't even make any sense. Let me start again. And you, you have to think, you get very focused about what you're saying. You get very focused about what you're thinking about because you're hearing this through God's ears. And you're asking yourself, does this make sense to God while I'm talking to God? And then God begins to change the way you see things. You have a conversation with somebody. You see something in the Bible. Have you ever noticed when you're praying about something that's all you see then after that? God starts forming your thoughts. And as your thoughts form, you either get more confidence or less confidence in your request. That request begins to morph. And then you pray again. And then you think about it again. And you pray again. And over time, your plan begins to change to morph to what God really wants it to be. Uh, and this is what was happening with Nehemiah for four months. I have a good friend in business who in his 60s told me, he says, you know, here's the problem. I'm always in a hurry. He says, the, the problem is God is never in a hurry. I've gotten ahead of God several times, and every time I get ahead of God, I get hurt. So what he had finally decided to do is I'm going to pray about things until I literally come to peace with that plan and if that takes two days or it takes two years, I'm not moving until I come to peace with this. I'm tired of getting ahead of God. It's just too painful. Getting ahead of God is just too painful. So Nehemiah waited and he listened to God and, and he moved at God's pace. But if there's only one thing you get from this whole message, I want it to be this next thing. Now Nehemiah wants to know what God's vision is. How do you know? Does he write it on the blackboard? Does he write it down on your computer? And he, he, no, he, no and no. So what he had to do is he had to step forward by faith. He had to step forward by faith even when he was afraid and even when he didn't have all the details worked out. And he had to step forward by faith and do something. So look what happens here. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was much afraid, as you would be. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Pause, because now he's disputing the king. So now maybe somebody's going to lop his head off with a sword. But the king said to me, what are you requesting? Pause. Do I say it? It's like, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, and, and, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I might rebuild it. And the king said to me, and the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? It's like, are you kidding me? Are you going to kill me or what's going to happen here? No, it's, how long are you going to be gone when are you coming back? So it pleased the king to send me. Didn't let me go. The king sent me when I had given him a time. What happened here? Nehemiah goes in with about a half a plan. But he doesn't know exactly what to do, but he stepped forward by foot, faith and he took the first step. He could have been ridiculed, he could have been killed, he could have been banished. It's a ridiculous request. I'm going to go back and rebuild the defensive wall so that you can't attack my people. That's what he's asking for. It's a ridiculous request, but he boldly made the request. Nehemiah understood his complete dependence on God for his success because he prays right while he's doing it. 
And yet, Nehemiah's vision becomes clearer once he has completed the first step. And, uh, you know, sometimes we have to do this. We face the same quandary. I'm not sure what to do. I need to do something, but I'm not sure what to do. And you boil this down, you pray about it, and it could be door number one or it could be door number two. You're not sure. What most people do there is they're now paralyzed. Because they don't know for sure what to do, they are paralyzed by fear, they're paralyzed by indecision, and they do nothing. I say what you do is you make your best judgment and you pick a door and you open it up and you go in. Go through door number one. Once you get inside door number one, there's a whole new pile of information that you get. See, he went through door number one. You know, he could have been, he could have been rebuffed by the king, in which he would have realized, not door number one, back up, shut door number one. Now it's probably door number two. But when he got inside door number one, what he found out was, whoa, so what do you want? How long are you going to be gone? What do you need? What's going on? He realized, I'm, in, I'm on the right path. It is door number one. He got a whole new pile of information. Sometimes, guys, we don't have all the information, and we have to step by faith one step at a time, and you learn one step at a time. God doesn't let you stand back here, see the end before you create the beginning, and go. That is not the way this works. You get pieces of information a little bit at a time, and God rolls it out because, you know, he said, the just shall live by faith. He wants us in that position. He wants us to be dependent on him every minute of every day. So this crawl, walk, run strategy, as I call it, served Nehemiah well. All right, second thing. Second thing Nehemiah did is he trusted that where God leads, God provides. Where God leads, God provides. How do you know? How did Nehemiah know this was God's plan and not his own crazy idea? Because if you've ever been in this position, you, d- you doubt yourself. Is this just me or is this God saying this to me? I'm, I'm not sure. So Nehemiah has to wonder, is this crazy mission impossible behind God or not? How's he going to find out? He stepped forward, and, and he keeps moving. Verse 7 through 9, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, the letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and let a letter to Asaph, the gatekeeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, for the wall of the city, and while we're at it, for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for. You know, he could ask for all that, and he's just like, are you out of your mind? You're asking me for the materials to build the wall that we just tore down uh, to, to, to finish the work that I've stopped for the last 20 years. That's what he could have said. But what he said was, okay. So, what, and so the king granted him what he asked for. Look what he says here. For the good hand of God was upon me. So he got safe passage. He got, he got lumber. In, in verse 9, it says, now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So he sends an army along with him just to make sure he he gets there okay. Now the army is the one that tore the walls down in the first place, but he sent the army with him. So what what are we, what's going on here? I mean, why would the king do this? Because literally, I think we've established it's, it doesn't make any sense for him to have done this. Sorry guys, but here's what I think happened. First of all, God provided for Nehemiah by giving the king an open mind. He, before Nehemiah ever got there, he gave the king an open mind. In, in Proverbs 21.1, it says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Somehow before Nehemiah got there, the king was prepared before he got there, and he gave the king an open mind. The second thing he provided for Nehemiah was favor with King Artaxerxes. Favor. In, in chapter 1, Nehemiah prays for favor. He says, Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Jesus, you know, I, I'm always reminded that Jesus, when he was an adolescent, in, in Luke chapter 2, 
In verse 52, it says this, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. What is this favor? Honestly, guys, we don't think about this enough. I have some Pentecostal friends that I am involved in various projects with. These people, they're praying for favor all the time. Favor is one of those things that when you show up, for some reason, people just like you. For some reason, they want to get behind you. They want to contribute to your success. They're with you. They're like, they're, they're in it to win it with you. For what reason? There is no reason. They just are. You have favor with them. And now instead of fighting against everybody all the time, instead of being a, going against the flow, the flow is behind you and you've got a wind at your back instead of a wind in your face. Isn't life hard enough? You know, John Wayne said, life is hard and it's even harder if you're stupid. You know, I think we ought to be smart and pray for favor because this is what God, God paved the way and now he's, Artaxerxes not only not opposing him, Artaxerxes is investing with him. He's investing in helping him to move forward. For what reason? Who would know? And the last thing that, and this, you, know, you guys might think I'm crazy about this last part, this last point, but I think God had people in place to pave the way before Nehemiah ever got there. Years before Nehemiah ever got there. Look at this. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 6 says, And the king said to me, parenthesis, the queen sitting beside him, parenthesis. Now, why do you think scripture captures this otherwise insignificant fact? Who, because the queen didn't make the decision, or Xerxes did. So, you know, the queen, we don't know who this queen is. Who is this queen? Did she influence the decision? We do not know. Did she, uh, but I'm going to say to get an answer to this, I would go back to the book of Esther. So if you look back at your chronology for a minute, you're going to see that the book, uh, the, the events of the book of Esther took place between 483 and 473 BC. Esther was queen to King Xerxes, father to Artaxerxes. Uh, at the time of Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1 in 444 BC, if Esther was 20 when she became the queen, she would be 60 on this day. Now, listen, Scripture is silent. It doesn't tell us who the queen was, as is history, because I researched it to see if I could figure out who this queen was. So history is silent, and Scripture is silent as to who the queen was. It is possible that parenthesis and the queen could have been Esther. If it wasn't Esther, you only have to do the math to know that Queen Esther was stepmother to Artaxerxes. We also know that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, boys and girls. Don't ever kid yourself, dads. I mean, we have stuff that we do, but we don't have as much power as we think. So uh, it's very possible, it's highly likely, that God had been softening the ground in Artaxerxes' heart long before Nehemiah ever got there. Long before Nehemiah ever got there. We don't know, guys, when God puts a big project in front of us, a God-sized vision, you know what we don't know? We have no idea what groundwork has been laid long before we got there. God knows. We don't know, and he doesn't want us to know. He just wants us to, to step forward by faith and do what he called us to do. But God did provide, and, and, and Nehemiah is now comforted by the fact that this is probably God's plan, not my plan, because where God led, God is providing in a crazy, crazy way. So it's the acid test. I can't tell you how many things I've faced in ministry and in business where somebody's got an idea, and hey, crazy ideas are a dime and a dozen. We all have crazy ideas. But my question is always is, if where God leads, God provides. So where is God providing here? You know, we don't know, but in this case, we do know. So the last point we're going to look at before we close is the last thing that God, Nehemiah did, and that is Nehemiah planned the work, and he moved forward boldly. 
Nehemiah's got a clear vision in his mind, and now he's got he's to boil that vision down to a working plan, and he's got to move forward boldly. So first thing he does is he re reduces the vision to a plan. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and then I so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were there to do the work. Now that is a really monotonous passage of scripture. I don't care how many gates you went through, or if it was too high or too low, or, you know, why is that all there? Somebody has to take this vision and actually break it down to a working plan. Now, some of us are good at this, and some of us are not good at this, but this is the world that I live in. I'm a, I'm a plan maker in real life, so I respect the idea that, yeah, somebody had to create the vision, but somebody has to say this plus this plus this plus this plus this is what's going to happen. He's breaking this down because if you lay out a vision with no plan, people are going to think you're crazy. So he's somewhere in this, he's breaking it down to a working plan, but then he's doing the next thing he does is critical for any of us that are leading anything. If it's leading our children, it's leading our family. And that's this. He cast vision. He cast vision for those who were to be involved in the work in verse 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may lo no longer suffer derision. And they think, well, great idea, bucko, but where's, how's this going to happen? And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words of the king that the king had spoken to me. And they said, okay, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. See, he had to enlist the help of others. Guys, we don't do God-sized things by ourselves. Nobody does a God-sized thing by themselves. Nobody's an island under themselves. He's trying, to, he's trying to do Mission Impossible. And Mission Impossible is not going to be easy to do. So he had to communicate a God-sized vision to the people who he was counting on to do the work. It's a God. We're going to rebuild the walls of this city. Because it was a God-sized vision, it was aspirational. He aspired to do something that was big, because it was aspirational, it was inspirational. He inspired people to do this, and he was thinking in God-sized terms, not man-sized terms. And so what do they do? They're ready to roll. They strengthen their hands for the good work that was in front of them. And he, and he clearly communicated what was in front of them. You know, we, we, we have a familiar passage in Proverbs 29, 18 that says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Man, mark that down as like number five in the top five things that's true in the Bible. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no vision, you know what people do? People are catty. They fight with each other. They bicker. They do all kinds of stuff. In the absence of a big vision, in the absence of a clear vision, people don't know what to do, so they devolve down to their normal, selfish little selves, and they fight with each other. I've seen that in churches. I've seen it in business. I've seen it in every, every aspect of my life. If you want to stop that problem, there's one simple way. Cast a strong vision, give somebody an oar, and tell them to start rowing. It is hard to rock the boat when you're rowing. You got to ask yourself, are you busy rowing or are you busy rocking the boat? Because if you're rocking the boat, you're useless. Stop it. 
So Nehemiah, the last thing here is Nehemiah, he expected opposition. But he purposed in his heart to press forward boldly. In verse 19 and 20. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and they despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? It's the same group that stopped this work all this time. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. You know, he expected, and we should expect, if you have a God-sized project, you're going to have enemies. Somebody's going to try to stop you. Now, most of us are savvy enough to understand that our enemies are going to come against us. And in this case, these guys have been stopping us work for, for a long, long time. It was predictable. He had to know they're coming. They're going to be here in 10 milliseconds. They're going to get themselves all wound up. They're going to get in a, in a, in a lather, and then they're going to go straight at us. It's exactly what they did. The part that many of us don't think is that our, our allies will also oppose us. Our allies oppose us. Guys, I, I, I've just been through too many of these things to not say this. Human beings, by nature, resist change. You could be in a pit of fire with ants eating at your body and bees stinging your eyes out, but it's the pit that you know, it's the pit you're comfortable in, it, you know how things work, you know where you fit, you know what happens. And somebody says, we're going to get you out of the pit and put you over here and stop those bees from stinging your eyes out. And you're, some people, most people, are going to resist it because they don't know what is outside of that pit. What if something outside of the pit is worse than what's inside the pit? Well, how could it be worse? Well, it could be. Well, what if, you know, it is in the nature of human beings to resist change. It just is. And when you're resisting change, ask yourself, check yourself and say, am I, am I doing this because God's telling me to resist this change? Or am I doing this because I'm just uncomfortable? Because most of the time it's just because we're uncomfortable. There's this new thing that we talk about in business that's about who succeeds and who doesn't. It's called grit. That's the technical term, grit. Uh, and it's a grit factor. He has a grit factor of 25. He has a grit factor of 10. And that is the ability to persevere and drive through every possible obstacle. And I'm going to say Nehemiah had a pretty high grit factor. Because in verse 20, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, and you got nothing. So, you know, this is that God-sized vision. This is what Nehemiah had. Scripture tells us a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. If you're going to do something that requires God-sized vision, you're going to have to set your eyes on a target and stick with it. And don't look to the left or the right. Jesus said, any man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom. What did he mean by that? You're, you're plowing a straight line. You know where you're going and then you look back. Oh, hold on. Wait a minute. Wait, so you only look over there. You can't figure out what's going on. If you put your hand to the plow and you're looking left and you're looking right and you're looking back, you know what happens is you're just going to go back and forth and back and forth. You're never going to get anywhere because while you're going back and forth, you're also running into opposition. The only way you get there is what the Apostle Paul said. He says, I press toward the mark for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So he had his eyes on the target. He says, I'm not looking left. I'm not looking right. I'm not looking back. The people that have the high grit factor are the people that understand I'm going there. I'm going to get there. And God is with me. I trust in this plan God is providing. And if God is providing, I'm not stopping. In the next chapter, we're going to see a passage where the, these guys are trying to get, get Nehemiah off the wall to stop the work. He says, why would I come off the wall to talk to you? The people have a mind to work. When the people have a mind to work, I ain't coming off there to waste my time with you. So we have to be single-minded. In conclusion, 
you thought it would never get here. Nehemiah has mission impossible. What did we learn here? God provided Nehemiah with a clear vision. God provided all the resources that Nehemiah needed to do this against all odds. But he needed to count on Nehemiah to do something. He had to count on Nehemiah to step out by faith and take action. Guys, this is not an academic pursuit just for the fun of it. God will do a lot of things, but you know, God by choice has decided something he can't do. He can't come down on earth face to face and talk to people. He can't come down on earth and pick up shovels and move stones. That's not what he does. He has us here, his ambassadors to do that. So Nehemiah had to step out by faith with perseverance. And we got to ask, what is this saying to me? Because we've been given an impossible mission too. Get the gospel to every man, woman, and child on the earth to build his kingdom, it's mission impossible. This is the theme of what we're talking about in the book of Nehemiah. Let me ask you a couple questions to ask yourself. Is your heart open? And are you open-minded to God's leading? Are, number one. Number two, are you seeking God's vision for your life? Not your vision, but God's vision for your life. And if he gave it to you, would you take action? Would you take action? Would you step out by faith and do the work? Proverbs 16.3 says, commit your works unto the Lord and your, your, your plans will be established. Are your works committed to the Lord? Because if they are, your plans will be established. Because if so, I think God can do some God-sized things in us and in our church. So let's, let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you today for your abundant patience with us. Lord, you gave the, the Jews hundreds of years to listen to you and turn back. You give us, by your grace, that same, same thing. You, you're patient with us. You love us. You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You, you don't want to judge us. You don't want to punish us. And yet, uh, you, you give us time. And we, we thank you for that grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your patience. But Lord, we pray that you would give us a vision. We pray that you would, you would help us to understand what it is that you want us to do that is God-sized in and through Mission View Church. We pray what you would have us to do as individuals with our families and our own lives. Lord, we give ourselves to you. We give this day to you. We give this church to you. And we just ask that you would take it and use it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.